is Tani Carter, and I'm just going to ask that all of you would join with me in the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading Joshua 11, verses 1 through 23. Then it came about when Jabin, king of Hazar, heard of it, that he sent to Joab, king of Maiden, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were of the north and in the hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinnereth, and in the lowland, and on the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanite on the east and on the west, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Jebusite in all the hill country, and the Hivite at the foot of Hermon in the land of Mizpah. They came out, they and all their armies with them, as many as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So all these kings, having agreed to meet, came out and encamped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Miram and attacked them. The Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them and pursued them as far as Great Sidon and Mizraphoth Maim and the valley of Mizpah to the east. And they struck them until no survivor was left to them. Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Then Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with a sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. They struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was no one left who breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings and struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. However, Israel did not burn any cities that stood on their mounds, except Hazor alone, which Joshua burned. All the spoil of these cities and the cattle the sons of Israel took as their plunder. But they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They left no one who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negev, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel, and its lowland, from Mount Halak that rises toward Seir, even as far as Belgad in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel, except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, to meet Israel in battle, in order that he might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza, and Gath, and Ashdod some remained. So Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. 
Thus, the land had rest from war. For those of you who don't know, my name is Dan Carter. Uh, my family and I have been attending Grace Point here for, I think, 21 years. Uh, we came around the same time that uh, Pastor Gary and Don arrived, I think probably within at least the same month. Um, we've been really involved with uh, ministry here at Grace Point. Uh, about uh, 15, 16 years ago, we started uh, leading a high school youth group. Uh, did that for 10 years and uh, loved every minute of it. It was just, uh, it was a blast. It was uh, in the youth house. Which direction is that? That way. Uh, we were in the youth house and uh, just every Wednesday, just bouncing off the walls, had a great time, a lot of fun. And uh, at about 10 years, we decided that we wanted to reach high, not only high school students, but high school and college age students as well. So we started a ministry called Beyond. And it's just a, a dinner in our house. We have now we're having it from 6.30 to 7, and we have a Bible study after. It's just real simple. And um, that has been a lot of fun as well. And um, so we've gone through several books of the Bible. Uh, we've read some C.S. Lewis. We've told our stories. We just have had a lot of fun. Just been a rich time. It's been really good. Also, uh, I am an online student with Dallas Theological Seminary, slowly working on a, a degree from Dallas Seminary. And... Uh, uh, I also want to say that when I was asked to preach, uh, you know, I thought about it, prayed about it, talked over with Paul Mayhew, and, and ended up saying yes. And then for some reason, after I said yes, I then looked at Joshua 11. And my response after looking at Joshua 11 was something like, oh, no. <laughs> what did I get myself into? And uh, I realized at that point that I was in deep water. But it's been good. I, I have grown through my study of Joshua 11. It's been a, it's been a good experience. Uh, never preached at Grace Point before, but uh, here I am, sink or swim, I'm diving in. But before I dive in the deep end of the pool, without my water wings, let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you, Father, that uh, you work through any of us. You work despite us. You are a faithful God, and we are, we're just so thankful for who you are and what you do through us. I talking with Tom Byron before the uh, church started this morning, remembering Acts 2 and John and Peter before the Sanhedrin. And uh, so, Father, it's, uh, it's amazing how you work through us. And so, so, Father, as your word is preached this morning, Father, I pray that uh, you would use my feeble words and, and just encourage us all through the preaching of your inspired word. So we surrender this time to you, and we thank you for Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen. So to begin, I want to give a very brief overview of the, the book of Joshua. Um, and to, be, and to, to do that, I just very quickly want to say, and I think a lot of you know this, that it's really important when you're studying a portion of Scripture that you can take the chapter or the, the unit of thought, whatever it is you're studying, the book, and you can boil down to one main idea, one sentence, uh, subject and predicate, complete idea. Uh, that's just an important thing to do because it's a good exercise because it tells you that you have a grasp of the Scripture. Some people call it the main idea. Some people call it the big idea. Gary calls it the central proposition. Um, I'm using main idea. And, uh, and so uh, you could say the main idea of all of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, you know, I would argue, is the redemption of fallen humanity, ultimately through Jesus Christ. I've heard it said that the, uh, that the theme of the Bible is redemption and the subject is Jesus Christ. So when considering the main idea of the book of Joshua, it's always good to look what the key verses are, right, when you do a Bible study. And so the key verses in the book of Joshua are Joshua 1, 1 through 9 and 24, through 4, 24, 14 through 15. At least that's the consensus. 
Um, to summarize uh, Joshua 1, 1 through 9, Joshua is taking over from Moses. Moses commands Joshua to be obedient, strong, and courageous, to not be afraid, and that, and that God will keep his promise of giving the promised land to Israel. Uh, and I'll read uh, Joshua 24, 14 through 15. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the, the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. And here's a familiar part. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So the main idea of Joshua could simply be stated, God keeps his promise of giving the promised land to Israel. Joshua, 24, uh, 40, uh, Joshua 21, 45 encapsulates this main idea nicely, which says, not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed, everyone was fulfilled. So, if the main idea of all of Scripture is, uh, if the main idea of all of Scripture, God's larger story, if you will, is the redemption of fallen humanity through Jesus Christ, and the main idea of the book of Joshua as a part of God's larger story is God keeps his promise of giving the promised land to Israel, then what is the main idea of Joshua 11? Um, and the answer to that question, although I haven't even looked at it yet this morning, is it's in your bulletin insert, the sermon notes. I have the main idea, what I'm arguing the main idea for Joshua 11 is typed out at the top of those of my sermon notes. And I'm arguing that it is uh, Yahweh unleashed his wrath against the unyielding Canaanites kept his promise to Israel as Joshua army conquers and takes possession of the promised land for the Lord's larger redemptive plan. So as we come to Joshua 11, and I was chatting with Paul before we started this morning, he was reminding me that it is a historical narrative uh, and uh, not like the book of Romans. Um, so, um, but if you break down the, the, the Joshua 11, uh, you know, structurally, um, Verses 1 through 5 describe one last attempt by the Canaanites to stop Israel from taking the promised land. Verse 6 is the Lord's assurance to Joshua that the attempt to stop Israel or defeat Israel will fail. Verses 7 through 22 details how this last period of conquest went down. What exactly happened uh, during, the, during that? What, what's the history? What, how did Israel conquer all those nations, all those uh, kingdoms? Verse 23, the last verse of Joshua, which I'll be talking about, uh, is a statement of it is finished, a huge statement of relief that is beyond words. Chapter 11 concludes, then land had rest from war. So as Joshua and the Israelites obeyed God, the Lord kept his promise to give Israel the promised land. So let's take a deeper look at what's going on in Joshua 11. Um, there are three points, conveniently, that I think are, are what Joshua 11 is about. The first point is the chapter, and the whole book of Joshua for that matter, is about Joshua's profound trust in God. The second point is God unleashing his wrath on the Canaanites. And the third point is Joshua's, uh, God's fullness, or excuse me, God's, God's faithfulness to his redemptive plan. God's faithfulness to his redemptive plan. These are the three points that I would like to explore in the few moments we have this morning. So to begin with, I would like us to look again at the first eight verses in, in Joshua 11. And as we go through these verses, I would like us to see the deep trust and courage that Joshua 
the deep trust and courage of Joshua, which is my first point. So let's look at uh, the first part of verse 1. When Jabed, king of Hazor, heard this. The question is, what did the king of Hazor hear? Well, naturally, we go back to chapter 10 and see what it says. So let's do that. So if you look at chapter 10, uh, flip back one page or swipe back one swipe, look at uh, chapter 10. We're gonna, I'm going to read to you verses 40 through 43. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to, uh, to the camp at Gilgal. So what did the king hear? That the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel and they had overwhelming victory. The question then becomes, what did Jabin, king of Hazor, do? Let's see what the text says. Let's start again in verse 1 and read through verse 5. Joshua 11, verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this, he sent word to Jobab, king of Maiden, to the kings of Shimron and Oxaf, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains of Arabah, south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills of Naphtapdor, on the west, to the Canaanites in, in the east and the west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites uh, below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined, joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Miriam to fight against Israel. So, despite what uh, King Jabin heard about what God was doing, and uh, I guess good Bible study method would tell you that he must have heard that the Lord was fighting for, fighting for Israel, despite hearing all that, um, that this, this, it can, we can only assume that this Canaanite king shook his fist in the face of Yahweh and in futility attempted to defeat the, the Israelites anyway. Let's continue in verse 6. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I'll hand them slain over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So at this point, um, Joshua had a choice. Joshua could say, really? Really, God? I mean, are you serious? Have you, have you seen that army? I mean, I know you're all knowing, you're all seeing, but have you seen how huge that army is? Uh, uh, but... But he didn't. I think we all know that. He didn't, he didn't respond that way. So what was Joshua's response? Let's look at verses 7 through 8. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. And the rest of verse 8 describes how the small army of Israel defeated this massive army. So we see in these verses that Joshua and the Israelites chose to be strong and courageous and obey God, which is a major theme in the book of Joshua. Joshua and the Israelites had a choice to trust uh, the Lord and obey him and trust that God would indeed keep his promises. Uh, in fact, there are five statements in, in Joshua 11 where it is clearly stated that Joshua chose to obey God. So, you know, it's the same for us. We must choose to trust God, choose to obey him, and choose to be strong and courageous. 
you know, through my study of this sermon and just through my own stress, I'm doing a kitchen remodel right now, and they are stressful. This one makes me feel like I want to never do it again. And so, and, I, and I've, I've said to myself, you know what, I need to practice what I preach because I have felt stressed. And, uh, and so I've realized that the trust is, is not a feeling, it is an action. And, uh, and that was certainly true with Joshua. <clears throat> we need to remember that courageously trusting God, as Joshua did, is not defined by the absence of the emotion of fear, but acting despite fear. So in other words, the text does not say this, but it's probably safe to assume because Joshua was human. And that when he was faced with this massive army, kind of reminds me of one of the last scenes in Lord of the Rings or something, Return of the King, a bunch of orcs or something. And he's faced with all this, and he had to have been, had his heart pounding out of his chest, sweating, hands shaking, but he acted anyway. And that's an important thing, I think, to remember. Text doesn't say how he responded uh, emotionally, but probably safe to assume he did respond that way. So, so while we stand up and cheer when Joshua and his army chose to be strong and courageous and Yahweh fights for Israel and, and they overwhelmingly win all the battles and uh, we, especially those men, uh, pump our fists and say, yeah. There is another side to this. What do we do with the means by which God handed the promised land to Israel? What do we do with the unleashing of his wrath against the Canaanites? What do we do with the, the wrath of God resulting in the death uh, the deaths of thousands of Canaanites, which included women and children. Especially in today's world, these questions are worthy of our consideration as we think together about my second point, God's wrath. If I'm to explain the text of, of Joshua 11, there is just no getting around the controversial subject of genocide in the Old Testament. Now, if there's someone here today that doesn't know what that term genocide means, it simply means the deliberate killing of people from a particular nation or ethnic group. So much of this chapter is a description of the slaughtering of thousands upon thousands of people. Let's face it. Genocide, genocide in the Old Testament is a huge topic and has had much written and said about it. But let me emphasize this. While all the killings should not be the focus, especially for those of us who understand who God is, who understands his character, it deserves some explanation in the few moments we have this morning. And in no way do I want to sound irreverent. In fact, my purpose would be to, under, to, be, to help us understand why God's wrath was unleashed against the Canaanites. There, there are things, you know, we all know there are things that God does that we simply don't understand this side of heaven. But despite what we don't completely understand, we can know that God is good. That said, the reality is if a new Christian or someone attacking the Christian faith, and this has happened, Christopher Hitchens has done this, uh, if they read Joshua 6 through 11, at face value, without any historical or cultural background, they have legitimate questions about God commanding the Israelites to kill tens of thousands of people. In this chapter, there are what I call 14 genocidal statements, depending on how you count. Whatever the case, there are many statements that can be troubling. And in these genocidal statements, we see, the text, we see in the text that God, through Moses, commanded Joshua to kill the Canaanites. For a couple of, exa for a couple of, of examples, uh, or I want to look at a couple of examples. Uh, first, I want to read to you uh, verses 10 through 14 in, in chapter 11. I just kind of explicitly talk about what I'm, what I'm mentioning here. At that time, Joshua turned back and conquered Hazor and put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms. Everyone in it they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. And he burned Hazor itself. 
Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. Yet Israel did not burn in the cities that were built on the mounds except Hazor, Hazor which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves the plunder and livestock of the cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. The second example is in verse 20. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord commanded Moses. My research for this sermon included a reading and listening to uh, speakers on this subject. I listened to a Dallas Theological Seminary podcast that I'd highly recommend. Uh, there's a couple of Old Testament scholars that talk about this just in honest terms. And uh, if you go on YouTube and, and uh, search genocide in the Old Testament, you'll find it. Um, but what I found especially helpful, oddly enough, is a short seven-minute video entitled, What About Genocide in the Old Testament? It's my understanding that this video is produced by the Colson Center for Worldview, founded by Chuck Colson. I encourage you to watch this short video. Uh, again, it's entitled, What About Genocide in the Old Testament? And, and I also want to point out that a seven-minute video is not going to resolve a huge topic like genocide in the Old Testament, but it's a great start. Um, so they begin in, in this video by, by saying, if someone asks you the question, unbeliever, atheist, someone... Uh, uh, antagonist of the Christian faith, they asked you, if God is so good, how can he command genocide in the Old Testament? What would you say? Uh, here's a summary of the response they suggest. They, ask, they, they uh, encourage the viewers to keep these three points in mind as you're having this discussion. The first point they make is God's command for Israel to drive out the Canaanites was not race-based, but behavior-based, as the Canaanites engaged in acts that would be considered criminal in civilized societies. They point out that the Canaanites engaged in horrific acts such as infant sacrifice, ritual sex, bestiality, and incest and were not, that were not only legal but common in their society. This behavior had been going on for centuries and it was an integral part of the, the worship to their idols. <clears throat> they also point out that God is a just God and it breaks his heart that those who, that he created would live in such gross self-destruction and for centuries the Lord wanted the Canaanites to repent. So conquering the Canaanites was not just a kind of on the on whim kind of a thing. It's something that had been going on for hundreds of years, for several centuries. Gerald Veland comments in the Moody Bible Commentary that the religions of, the, uh, of Canaan entailed some of the most degenerate practices in history. The second point they make is that God is willing to work where they, where they are, not where they ought to be. He works within messy human cultures to move, this is important, to move them toward redemption. So what I'd like to do is just, there's a couple of paragraphs, I just want to read the second point to you, just the easiest way to cover it. Uh, and I'm quoting, God is willing to work with people where they are, not where they ought to be. He works within messy human cultures to move them toward redemption. When the Canaanites refused to repent, God finally brought judgment in the language they would understand, the language of war. In fact, war was an everyday part of life in the ancient Near East. All nations at that time depended on war for survival or subjugated themselves to another nation for military protection. While it's hard for us to imagine a world where war is, war is an everyday norm, God is always willing to work within the cultures no matter what their norm is. Just as we adapt our own behavior and language when we are in a different culture or country, 
the language of the ancient Near East was violence and war, and a victory by the Israelites, a much smaller and weaker nation than the Canaanites, suggested divine intervention. And I really want you to listen to this last paragraph. God works with people where they are, not where they ought to be. And when he accommodates certain inferior conditions of a culture, it's to move them in a redemptive direction. In the case of the Canaanites, even beyond using Israel to stop their violence and evil, God was working to accomplish a larger plan, his mission to bring redemption to the entire cosmos. Even as he was judging the Canaanites, a seriously corrupting and evil force in the world, he was orchestrating, orchestrating the story of redemption, securing the land for Israel in which the Messiah for all nations would appear. So I want you to notice in the second point how much uh, redemption is en emphasized. <clears throat> the third point they make is that the Old Testament's mention of Canaanite survivors shows that uh, its total kill language is simply ancient Near Eastern exaggeration or hyperbole. Uh, so, what, so what they're saying is that elsewhere in Scripture, and I didn't take the time to cite the Scriptures, I should have, um, there's a mention of the Canaanites and how they survived and how Israel is encouraged to not intermarry with them. So they're still around. They have not been totally killed. Uh, and so they would say that is evidence that of hyperbole or exaggeration. So suffice to say that under this point, hyperbolic language and exaggeration was common in ancient Near Eastern writings. In fact, we have an example of hyperbole in Joshua 11.4, where Joshua states that the northern, the northern kings had a huge army as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So the language in Joshua 11 that states that the Canaanites were totally destroyed, killed everybody, you know, killed everything that breathed, may be considered hyperbole or exaggeration as used in the writings of that time. So what does that mean? I take it to mean that thousands were killed, uh, but that the killing may not have been to the extent that Joshua 11 indicates. So those are three things to consider. Uh, genocide in Old Testament, again, a huge topic, but, uh, but I just thought it needed to be addressed. So, and what I'd like to do is I'd like to repeat the last sentence of the second point uh, of the Colson's, the second point of the Colson's uh, argument, uh, because it so well encapsulates my third point, uh, God's faithfulness to his redemptive plan. They say at the end of the second point, even as he what he, God, was judging the Canaanites, a seriously corrupting and evil force in the world, he was orchestrating the story of redemption, securing the land for Israel in which the Messiah for all nations would appear. I would argue that verse 23 has much to do with God's larger redemptive plan. Let's, let's look at verse 23, the last verse of the chapter. So Joshua took the entire land as the Lord had directed Moses. He gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions, then, I love this, then the land had rest from war. In my mind, verse 23 is monumental. You know, I read about it in commentaries, and it seemed like people didn't comment on it very well, and I don't, I don't know why, because it just seems monumental to me. Uh, God has kept his promise he made to Israel to give them the promised land. It had been a long-standing promise given to Abraham way back in Genesis 12 and 15. But and back in Deuteronomy 31, we read, Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him, In sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you will go with the, this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you will give it to them as an inheritance. And the Lord is, uh, is the one who is going ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not desert you or abandon you. 
do not fear or be dismayed. It's also important to point out that we can sit down and read Joshua chapters 6 through 11 in one sitting easily. But it was seven long years. Israel fought bloody battle after bloody battle against the Canaanites, and finally, it is finished. God kept his promise. Israel has the land, and the land had rest from war. Um, And I would argue that all of this is just a graphic reminder that God keeps his promises, that he is a God who is worthy of our trust. And as I close this morning, the question I have for us is, will we choose to trust God? Will we choose to trust God? For centuries leading up to this point, the Canaanites had a choice. The Canaanites had the choice to place their faith in Yahweh and join him in his larger redemptive plan or shake their fist at God and suffer his wrath as King Jabin did. I would argue the story of Rahab is to illustrate the choice the Canaanites had and that we all have. Here is a woman who is a Canaanite and a prostitute. I mean, can you imagine a prostitute in Canaanite? Who chose, or a prostitute in the land of Canaan. Uh, she, uh, she chose to trust Yahweh, saving her and her family's lives, Joshua 6.12 says. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. It also appears that Rahab had saving faith. The writer of Hebrews states, By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So it could be argued that we'll see Rahab in heaven. Uh, as I said earlier, Joshua and the Israelites also had a choice. They, they chose to trust God. And again, it is the same for us. Uh, we must choose to trust God, choose to obey him, and choose to be strong and courageous. What is the army that is encamped around you today? What army is encamped around you today? What is, what is it that you're af- afraid to trust God with? What is the situation you're in right now where you know in your mind that you need to trust God, but you are struggling with so much fear. We need to remember that courageously trusting God as Joshua is not defined by the absence of the emotion of fear, but again, acting despite fear. I believe there's a mysterious process that happens when we do this. At the moment we choose to trust God, I believe that the person of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, the second person of the triune God, is faithful to encourage us And as as many of you know, we have experienced this in a very real and raw way. Many of you know our story. Our family has gone through a very painful time where we desperately needed to trust God. On December 30th, 2012, I received a phone call from my close friend, Andy McGuire, that would violently shake my faith to its foundation. Andy called with the horrific news that our oldest son, Daniel, had suddenly and tragically died. I have never experienced anything more painful in my life than the loss of our son. As my wife, Tawny, my son, Benny, and I, along with all those who love Daniel, grieved him leaving us, and as we chose to trust God in the middle of our agony, he was faithful to keep his promise to never leave us or forsake us. As those dark days went by, we began to see glimmers of hope, hanging on to the hope that we will see Daniel again. We were strengthened by the promise of God's larger redemptive story, the story in which Israel were recipients of God's promise, this land where the Son of God would live among us, showing us that he is God. The land on which 
would soak in his blood he shed for us, the land on which he will return and bring us who believe in him home. Because all this happened, we will see Daniel again. Because we chose to trust God, we have hope. I'm wondering if there's anyone here today who does not have this hope. I'm wondering if there's anyone here today that is not sure where they'll go when they die. You can be sure where you'll spend eternity. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Here he stood at this pulpit for 20 years and he said the only condition for salvation is faith. Faith plus nothing. Faith alone in Christ alone. So my question for you today is, will you believe in Jesus if you don't? Or maybe you're here because your spouse, uh, you're trying to make your spouse happy, your parents force you to come. I would encourage you, uh, put all external uh, influences aside and just believe in Jesus. I encourage you to do that. I'm also wondering if there's anyone here today that is going through a difficult time, maybe doubting the goodness of God. Maybe you've gone through something like we've gone through or are going through something like we have, we've gone through. Maybe there's been a miscarriage. Maybe there's been a death. Alex Harville recently passed away in a tragic accident. His parents are now where we were. So maybe you're going through a difficult time and maybe you're not sure you can trust God. I'm here to tell you, you can trust God. He is, he, he is a God who can be trusted. He is faithful to keep his promises. At Daniel's graveside service at the Freda Cemetery right here in Freda, on a cold snowy day in January, Pastor Gary said something I will never forget. He said, we are standing on holy ground. He said that we are standing on holy ground. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 tells us what Gary meant. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want, to, want you to know that what will happen to believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will, will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet, of, uh, and the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will, ri raise, will rise from their graves. Then together with them, all who are still alive will remain on the earth, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So, encourage each other with these words. God has a redemptive plan that will culminate when Jesus Christ returns. We are given new bodies and we will be reunited with others who have placed their faith in Jesus as we all enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. When I step into eternity, the first thing I will see is the face of Jesus. And I often wonder, because just because of the kindness of God, that the second thing I'll see is the smiling face of Daniel saying to me, it's okay now, Dad. At that moment, I will throw my arms around my son, and if there are any tears in heaven, they will be tears of utter joy. The Hebrew word uh, shalom is a, a word rich with meaning that means far more than just peace. Barry Jones, Dallas Seminary professor, has defined shalom as the dream of God of a world set right. The dream of God of a world set right. 
God is a God who keeps his promises. He kept his promise to Joshua and all of Israel, uh, giving the promised land, which they still possess today, by the way. And he keeps his promises to us today as well, and he will in the future. Those of us who believe in Jesus will experience his ultimate promise when we meet him in eternity. Trust the Lord. He's indeed worthy of our trust. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you indeed are a God who is worthy of our trust. Uh, we thank you, God, that you, we, we can trust you with, uh, with anything that is thrown at us at this, in this life. Um, the challenge to all of us is to believe that God is good no matter what happens. Thank you, person of the Holy Spirit, that you empower us, you strengthen us, you encourage us, you come alongside and encourage us. Um, and, Father, my prayer is that all of us would choose to trust God. Father, we have seen in your inspired word today that, that you are a God who can be trusted. So, Father, would you work with all of us in, in such a way that we trust you more deeply with whatever is going on in our lives. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for Jesus uh, who walked on this earth among us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Our benediction this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it.